If you've got your Bibles with you, won't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, first part of the second half. Um, it's a, a book by the disciple Matthew. He was a disciple of Jesus, also known as Levi, the tax collector. And <clears throat> he wrote this gospel of Jesus, this eyewitness account of his time with Jesus, mostly to a Jewish audience. So he wrote it mostly for other people like him, for other Jews. We see in the four Gospels, there are kind of four different intended audiences of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is why they kind of have a different feel to them. And so Matthew 26, we're now right at the end of, close to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the book. Um, there's 28 chapters in it. And what we're getting to here is the final moments, uh, final two days of, or three days of Jesus's life on earth. And so we've had this moment where Jesus was reclining at the table and the lady breaks the perfume and anoints his head with perfume. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you, but I imagine it would be quite a strange experience. Um, but she does it and she and the whole perfume fills the whole house and Jesus smells amazing. And then they go on and they leave out of there. They go, they go and have the, the, the last, what we call the last supper. So Jesus with his disciples table for 26 and all 13 of them on one side of the table so they could paint a nice painting of it. Um, and then they go out and then Jesus leaves, leaves Jerusalem and he goes out just, just outside the city limits and he goes into this, this garden. So we're going to read uh, just 10 verses out of Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read from verse 36 and it reads like this. So, so this leads up to this. So you understand why it says, then Jesus went. So we've, we've had the, the Last Supper and all of that. And it says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father... If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same, same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Hear the word of the Lord. So what happens in this moment? And before we get into exactly what's going on, there's some interesting symbolism and pictures that we might miss as we read this and we go over too quickly. Gethsemane was a garden. It was a, a cultivated area just on the, um, across the little Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives. There was the, this area like an olive grove or a garden that was there it depends on how you interpret the words that are used to describe it but anyway it was a cultivated area where people would have made a particular sort of it wasn't just wild and ragged is what it's getting at it's not a wilderness it's not a 
just an open place. And when we see when we see pictures used in the Bible, when we see um, settings used in the Bible, we should take note of those things when, when the authors use them, different authors or the same author uses the, either the same picture or the same setting or the same words. We've got to take note of those things and have a look at them because those then are, we've got to see them as symbols that they're trying to convey meaning in something. So what we, what we see here is the use of garden repeatedly in there. Now, one of the, Tim Mackey puts it like this. He says, one of the primary vehicles of meaning in biblical narratives, that's just biblical stories, is when they, the biblical authors, highlight and repeat where events take place. Now, you'll know this intuitively. Settings are vital to a story or to a narrative. They are a crucial way to communicate the meaning of what's about to happen. If I were to tell you a story and I said, on a dark and stormy night on a deserted road, you're like, something bad going to happen. Once upon a time in a village, far, far, far away, lived an ogre. You think, well, that's quite nice. That sounds quite, it's like a village and it's far away. And you think something. And so wherever the story is set, it has meaning to what that story is going to communicate. So, so this story that we're reading about here, the story of Jesus right in the end, and is, it takes place in a garden. And we're going to look at the symbolism of a garden and what it means. But just two quick things, two absolute rabbit holes and side notes, squirrels for me. There's two other symbols in here that we can take note of. And one is the cup and one is the hour. And again, those are things that we don't use in our language, which is why I wanted to point them out. Where Jesus says, take this cup from me. And you're like, just put it down, buddy. You don't, you know, why does someone have to take it from you? But it's obviously, it's more than that. It's more than, it's not just a physical cup. We have the same thing when James and John come and ask, we want to be like on your left and on your right. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized? So the cup, interestingly, is a picture of divine judgment. It's not a great thing. It's not just like a cup of juice or a cup of wine. It's essentially what the Father's will is and how it will be played out. That's the cup that Jesus has to drink. He understands that he is going to face the judgment and the wrath of God in this moment. And yet Jesus is astonished, as Mark puts it. If we look at that, um, that first slide, Seth, on, the, on the, uh, the Matthew Scriptures, then Jesus went. It says in there that as he went along, his soul, he, he says, he was, first of all, it says he was uh, sorrowful and troubled. And then it says in Jesus' words, quoting, he says to his people, he says to the people with him, he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. What an incredible weight he was carrying. That's the cup Jesus understands he's got to drink. That's the cup he's got to take on. That's, he knows he's going to face death. Right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 26, Jesus tells his disciples, I am going to be crucified. In three days, they're going to crucify the Son of Man. He knows he's going to die. Here, Jesus is struggling. He's wrestling. Luke says he, he sweats in a way that a sweat, be, like he's, while he's praying, that a sweat becomes like drops of blood. He, he's back and forth wrestling with God over this thing. And you're kind of going, man, there's some other people that died a lot better than Jesus did. There were some martyrs that died in ways that were far braver than what Jesus did. And you're going like, how is that possible? Like, how is it possible that someone else 
can die in a way that is, you know, the guys, people that were burnt at the stake and people that were, you know, fed to lions and many of them refused to recant and they stood there boldly proclaiming Jesus until they died. And here's Jesus struggling. And the reason being is that nobody died a death like Jesus before or since. You see, what Jesus did is Jesus carried the weight of sin. And the, the, the penalty for sin is separation from God. And Jesus, as God, as the Son of God, had never experienced that. And that is what made him so sorrowful. Not to carry your sin, but the effects of that thing. That's the thing that overwhelms him. Nobody else died a death like that. Nobody else carried the weight of that death. That's the cup that Jesus drinks. The second one is the hour. Now, what that means is time, time of day. So, And it's a, it's a beautiful symbol in there that what it is, is is God's will not only has an outworking, it doesn't only look like something, it's not only visible, and, but it has a timing. There is a perfect timing to God's will. The symbolism that we see here is the garden. And that's the main one I want to focus on this morning. Because a garden in biblical times, if we, if we look at them, they were... You know, it has a lot of symbolism about it, that they were like rich. They were well-cultivated, luxurious places. So there were places where plants are planted that don't necessarily normally grow in there. But they're nice to look at. They're lacking to be around. If you've ever been to someone's house that has an amazing garden, it's, it's just nice to be in the garden. It's just nice to be out there. There's plants that drive away the mosquitoes, and there's plants that draw nice birds, and, you know, there's trees to sit in the shade of and and what it is in the bible is these gardens are a picture both of a natural and of a of a sacred space a place where where life is richly nourished where where things are well tended to and everything's in its place and it's it's well kept also gardens were were put in places for the enjoyment of people that's why we we cultivate gardens if you've been to like a botanical gardens or anything like that yes it's to preserve plants but it's so that people can go there and enjoy them. They carry motifs or pictures of beauty, abundance, and satisfaction. And what we see in the Bible is there's kind of three main gardens that we see. And the first one is right in the beginning in Genesis, we see God plants a garden in the east, and he calls it Eden, or paradise. And so that's the first garden we see. And then God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says to them, look after it. So God makes Adam a gardener. That was the first work that was ever given to man, was gardening. Before the fall, before sin, God made work. Side note, work's not evil. So God puts Adam in this beautiful garden that he prepares and he looks after and it's incredible. This garden of Eden has all these amazing plants and water and it's just lush in the desert. And then we obviously see the garden here at Gethsemane we're going to talk about. And then right at the end of the Bible, Revelations 21, the, um, the heavenly city that we are going to live in with God, the pictures around this, the symbolism around that is of a garden city, the city that has this river of living water flowing through it that nourishes these trees that are on either side that flower 12 each month of the year, 12 times a year, and their leaves are for the healing of the nation. This beautiful picture of this city with an abundant life and garden in it. But if we're just going to compare maybe not just the, the past and the future ones, but just to look at Eden and Gethsemane. So if we're going to look just, just to compare the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane, where we see these two major stories play out in human history. And so 
There's other gardens, by the way, that are spoken of in the, in, the, in the Bible. Ezekiel speaks quite a lot about the garden of God. Isaiah speaks and others speak of um, the garden of the Lord or the garden of Yahweh. And Jesus' resurrection, by the way, on Easter Sunday also initially takes place in a garden. His tomb was, had a garden around it. And we see that from um, John 19, 41. It literally says the tomb was in a garden. And then in John 20, verse 15, Jesus is mistaken by Mary for a gardener. She thinks he's the gardener tending there. So if someone mistakes you for a gardener, it's not a bad thing. But do you, again, do you see the symbolism? So Adam put in the garden in the beginning to work the garden as a gardener. Jesus resurrected. Someone who is with him every day mistakes him for a gardener. We start connecting the dots and we start seeing the richness of what is written in the word is incredible. And we're kind of going, wait, hang on. These are authors that are thousands of years apart. But maybe there's one author who was behind that who inspired them to write it. So in these two gardens of Eden and Gethsemane, there's one thing that happens that is common to both. And that is an, an incredible battle that takes place in both gardens, both in Eden and in Gethsemane. In Eden, the battle was lost, and in Gethsemane, the battle was won. I believe that Jesus' greatest victory took place in Gethsemane. That's the title for this morning's sermon, by the way. It's the greatest victory or the greatest battle ever won. I think it's the greatest victory. I can't remember what I settled on. The greatest victory. Is it up there? So the battles in these gardens were lost and won for obedience to God. That is the greatest battle that we will face too, is for obedience to God, for choosing to believe what God says is true and good for me and follow that. You know, Adam and Eve in that garden, we often see that moment in Genesis 3 where they chose to eat the fruit, the symbolism of them choosing not to obey God. God had said, don't eat from this tree. It's not good for you. Eat from this one and you'll live forever. Don't eat from that one. It's not good for you. And we see that as a moment where, the, where the, you know, the devil came and tempted them and they ate, both of them. And we go, man, that was, a, that was a tough day. I would have resisted for that day. But what we miss is that that tree was there every day. Adam and Eve had to make that choice to obey God every single day. It wasn't a once-off choice. That tree was in the middle of the garden each and every day of their lives. I wonder how long... They were in the garden before they gave up and chose to eat that fruit. You see, friends, we've got to be aware that we've got an enemy who is very patient and who is very willing to wait for that moment when you are most vulnerable to catch you out with the disobedience to God. He's got thousands of years of human study on us and he knows how we work. We need to choose every single day to be obedient to God. We make the same choices that Adam and Eve did. Probably multiple, uh, not probably, multiple times a day, we need to choose to obey God's will. And the only way we can do that is based on a relationship of trust in God. And, and you can only trust someone when you know them. Trust is a funny thing. It's given, not earned, by the way. And we can only give God our trust when we know him. And so when we build that relationship with God through daily experience, through walking with others, through reading the word, through praying, through getting to know God, we are able to then trust him and go, okay, God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but you say I must do this, so I'm doing this thing. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 58, Paul writes this. 
speaking about the resurrection at the end times. He says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, so in other words, that's what is our failing bodies have been resurrected, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I want to focus on those last few lines. He has given us, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us. It's a present continuous. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you and I get to walk in the victory of what Jesus won. Jesus faced the battle in Gethsemane. He was faithful in that moment. And we get to walk in the victory of that. You see, Jesus faced it and won, so we, get to, we also get to walk in it differently to how Adam did. We stand not on our own victories, but on Jesus' victory. And his greatest victory was this. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. That is the moment that the victory was won. When, when Jesus, fully God, fully man, son of, son of God, come here for one purpose, in that moment, had a choice. Incredible. He had a choice. He could choose in that moment to short circuit, call down the armies of heaven, run away, disappear, Go back to heaven. I don't know what his options were, but I'm sure he had options. And yet he chose in that moment, not my will, but your will be done, God. What an incredible victory that he gets to live in. And then we see coming out of that Jesus arrested, the persecution and the cross that happens. And we put lots of emphasis on the cross, and rightly so, because that is the final moment of Jesus' victory. But the cross is the outworking. It's the battle where the victory is won. The victory had already been won. And so for us, friends, we've got to make that thing. You see, you can't, and, and there's, a, there's an interesting thing in there, is that you, Jesus didn't, I say this very carefully because he did, but he didn't. Jesus didn't win the whole battle on the cross. The cross is the final obedience, but the decision is made in Gethsemane. By the time it came to, to be on the cross, the decision had been made. You see, when we are going to go into battle, you cannot prepare for war in the midst of battle. By the time you get there, it's too late. When your child is throwing a tantrum, it's too late then to have a discussion about how are we going to discipline our child when they have a tantrum. You've got to decide that stuff beforehand. As a married couple, it's too late in the midst of the fight to go, oh, wait, hang on, we need to learn about communication. It's the last thing you're thinking about when you're going at each other. Not that we would know. <laughs> I never fight with my wife. But it's too late, friends. You see, when we face problems, when we face battles in our lives, have we prepared for those moments? Have we, before we get into war, before we get into the battle, got the strategy from the Lord? We see it over and over again in the Old Testament. David, a brilliant military leader. He was a fantastic tactician, just in pure human terms. Brilliant politician. But yet before he goes into the battle, he knows he's going to face something. And he says, hang on, let me go and ask God. And God says, when you hear the sound of armies marching in the tops of the trees, 
What? Then you know it's time to attack. Sorry, Lord, could you, like, what does that mean? But he gets strategy from God in that moment. And he's going to face another army, and he doesn't go, okay, guys, we're listening for the noise in the tops of the trees, huh? He goes before God again in the second battle, and he says, Lord, what about now? And God gives him a different strategy. And it's incredible, because you would think, man, he's got something that works. Use what works. But each and every time, there's this relational dependence on God for the strategy. Do we have that? Are we seeing the battles that are coming? Discern the cup that you're going to have to drink. And that's, that's what Jesus does, is he discerns the Father's will, where you want me to go. He discerns the timing of it, what is the hour. And then he says, right, I'm going to choose to do your will. The battle is won before Jesus enters it. And the enemy thinks he's got him. He thinks, I've got him. Nailed to a cross, we're going to kill the Son of God. And he doesn't realize the victory's already been won the night before in the garden. This is simply the outworking of that victory. Jesus, how does he get to this point? How does he get to this point of being so, so faithful, so strong, so like willing to do what the Father says? I believe he does it through a lot of practice and discipline of obeying God. You know, earlier on, John quotes Jesus as saying, I do nothing but what I see the Father doing, and I say nothing but what I hear the Father saying. He has had practice at doing God's will. He's had practice at listening to God and working it out, being obedient in the small things, so that by the time it came to be obedient in this big thing, it was an easy choice for him. He knew. And we've got to practice those same things. Be obedient in the small things with God. Be obedient in the little things. Just the, the little white lies that are not going to hurt anybody. Tell the truth. In those little moments where you just be honest and have integrity, do the will of the Father, do the right thing in the small things, and the big things that come later will be far easier. You see, the enemy knows you're going to catch us with the little things first. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he, it's letters between, it's fictional letters between a head demon and an underdemon, and, and this underdemon is struggling to catch his subject out, his person. And he's got this problem with eating. And he says, man, you don't catch him by taking him, I'm paraphrasing, so you don't catch him by, by taking him to a buffet. Just get him to eat that one small piece of chocolate and you've got him. And he'll break and the guilt and the shame that'll come with that will make him eat the buffet. And it's the same with us. Win the small battles, win the little things and the big things become easier. When you're faithful with the small, it's easier to be faithful with the much. Jesus does this even on this night as he faces the greatest battle that he ever had. He goes to God over and over again in prayer. And he's not afraid to say his own peace. He's not afraid to say, Father, if this cup can be taken from me, it's not wrong to ask God things that are in your heart and your desires. It's not wrong. But he subjects it to the Father. If it is your will, take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours. And so three times Jesus goes backwards and forwards to God in solitude and in prayer. Great discipline, great disciplines and practices for us as disciples of Jesus to do. Are we ever alone with God? Do we ever spend time, quality, chunky time alone with God? Because what happens in this moment is that Jesus doesn't try and bend the Father's will to his. He submits it. He submits his will. And Tim Keller says that this is the point of all prayer. Not to bend God to our will. 
but to submit ours to the Father. How much time do we spend in prayer asking God what His will is? Oh, are we so busy going, God, I want this. God, can you do this? God, make this happen. How much time are we in prayer going, Lord, I submit my will to yours. I'd love to see this happen, but not my will, but yours be done, Lord. See, we don't pray so that we can get, to get God to do what we want to do. We pray to discern what God wants us to do and then go and do it. Otherwise, how do we act in faith? You can't act in faith if you don't know what it is that God's asking you to do. See, faith is not based on my assumptions of what is right and wrong. Faith is based on who God is and what he's asked me to do or what he says. And there's some general things and there's some specific things, but that is how we act and how we live out a life of faith. And so as we go into this week, as we lead up to Easter, I want to encourage you, look for the small battles that you can win. Decide beforehand what it is. Prepare for war before you get into the battle and go, right, this week I'm going to be absolutely honest. And that doesn't mean rude and unkind. Just means honest. I'm going to, whatever, I'm going to not eat something that I know is bad. I'm using silly examples. Please don't use my examples, but you can find your own. Whatever that thing may be, whatever the battles are that you face, get wisdom from God and discernment from God before those battles, before you come into them. You prepare for war before you go into the battle. And then when we face the battles, we're able. The victory is won already. It is so much easier when you've pre-decided that you're not going to do something, that in that moment you get there and you're like, it's fine, I've decided already. It's not even an issue for me. I've already settled it in my heart. That's not happening. Is that okay? Let's live like that. Let's live in a way where we take that victory that Jesus won in the garden and we live it out via the cross daily in our lives. And we bear that cross. We take up our cross and we walk with that daily. So we are, we are like those who are dead. And then we can say with, P, with Paul, as he does in 1 Corinthians 15, that we have the victory through Jesus. Therefore, we stand firm, nothing moves us, and we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because that we know that laboring or working for the Lord is not in vain. Don't ever discount the small things that God does in your life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we get to live in the victory that Jesus has won. I thank you that as we lead up to Easter, this most momentous of weekends that we celebrate what Christ has done for us on the cross, that we can come into this place knowing that Jesus was faithful in the most trying and difficult hour of his life. Lord, I pray that you would help us as disciples and followers of Jesus to live in a way that shows Jesus to the world, that exemplifies his, his life and his goodness and his grace and his mercy. Help us, Father, through your Holy Spirit to be those who bring life wherever we go, to bring the grace of the Lord Jesus wherever we go. And Lord, I pray this week that as we come and we seek you, that you would speak to us clearly about your will. Help us, Holy Spirit, to discern the will of the Father. And then help us, Holy Spirit, to live that will out, to be bold and courageous and full of faith as we live that will out. Lord, I pray that you open our eyes to the battles that we are facing. And give us the strategy of how to live out that victory in those places. I thank you, Jesus, for your example and that we get to live in the benefit of it. Amen.